Welcome to McLean's Pop Culture Podcast, A Thrill, for the week of April 24th. On this week's show, remembering a Canadian icon, Lois Lillenstein of Sharon Lois and Bram fame passed away this week. We'll talk to children's entertainer Raffi about her legacy and why the outpouring of emotion after her loss has been so huge. Ben Affleck hunts for goodwill. The A-list actor got himself into trouble after he asked a PBS show to strike a portion of the show Finding Your Roots, where he learned that his great-great-great-grandfather owned slaves. Are we right to call him out? And pop culture crushes. For so many, Gilbert Blythe, played by Jonathan Crombie, who died suddenly this week, was many people's first pop culture crush. We talk about who ours were and ask, why do they matter? I'm Adrian. I'm Emma. And I'm Julia. And this is The Thrill. On April 23rd, Lois Lillenstein, of Sharon Lois and Bram fame, died at the age of 78. The three performers brought joy to scores of Canadian children with their catchy songs and unselfconscious dancing, perhaps best known for such lilting classic kid songs as Skinnamarink and Fish and Chips and Vinegar, and have remained beloved institutions in the country. Good. Fish and Chips and Vinegar, 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 Fish and Chips and Vinegar, Pepper, 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 Salt, let's sing it. With more than 40 albums and more than 50 TV specials, they've had parks named after them, and they've become national ambassadors for UNICEF. And they weren't alone. They were part of a golden age of Canadian children's entertainment, including such acts as Eric Nagler, Fred Penner, and Mr. Dressup. And so to tell us about his memories of Lois, we rang, rang, rang up Mr. Bananaphone himself, the Canadian entertainer Raffi, to talk about Lillenstein's legacy. Thanks for joining us, Raffi. Sure, my pleasure. Just wanted to start by asking you uh, your your sort of initial memories of uh, of Lois and and sort of how she inspired you, especially early on. Well, in the early days, in the mid seventies, we were uh, friends and colleagues in Toronto. We were both in Mariposa in the schools. Uh, we were singing for children, and we were you know I was learning because uh, she was well known in uh, you know the early childhood education circles in Toronto, and so I learned from her. She taught me about. Uh, you know, what kids enjoy, because I was a newcomer to the field, you see. Mm-hmm. And she taught me about uh, movement being important in kids' songs, and also that uh, humor is a good thing. I think I even learned the song The Hokey Pokey from her. Uh, what was it that you learned most? Like, What was your, your biggest lesson from her? Well, I think, as I said, the importance of movement, um, you know, kids' music being an important uh an important gift for children in the sense that it gives them so much, you know, expression of their own uh, interior life, uh, learning about the world around them, very social activity, singing, right? Mm-hmm. So all these things, uh, I think, um, uh, had uh, had a lot to do with how I came to shape my singable songs uh, for the Very Young album, my initial debut album for children. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Uh, Adrian, she actually did a very kind review of that album, uh, just as it uh, was released. Mm-hmm. And so you saw it in her, and, and you've gone on to do it yourself. But so uh, what is it that makes a, a really great children's entertainer? Well, you've got to love children, and you've got to respect them for the whole people that they are, and you've got to make music with respect. Mm-hmm. And, and what's interesting is that Lois wasn't actually you know, Canadian, but there was something essentially Canadian about her, as well as you know, Sharon Lois and Bram. Uh, what was it that made her feel so Canadian? a hard question to answer. Um, I think I can best say that we were living in Toronto, which was a very multicultural city, uh, and was even in the 70s, and we were, uh, you know, aware of uh, the, uh, the the enrichment from different uh, people of different origins and songs from different cultures, you know, and she was strong on uh, uh, her repertoire of children's songs. 
uh, I may have learned the song Brown Girl in the Ring from her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my memory is kind of casting back to see <laughs> what's in those memory banks. But, yeah, we, you know, Ken Whiteley was also part of the scene. Of course, Bram and uh, Sharon, we were all in this um, wonderful musical, uh, you know, collect- collective, if you will. Uh, Mariposa in schools, and we were sharing songs and ideas and that kind of thing. On that point about uh, the how you guys kind of came up together, there was really this golden age of Canadian children's entertainment. You mentioned um, Bram and Sharon, of course, and there's Eric Nagler and, and uh, Fred Penner, yourself, Polka Dot Door, Today's Special, all kinds of things. <laughs> Do you think that kind of golden age of Canadian children's entertainment is is over? Did you forget the friendly giant? And Mr. Oh, of course. <laughs> how could I? <laughs> well, I, I think rather than say that it's over, let's just celebrate that there has been this wonderful outpouring uh, of music from Canada for children, and that we've played a leadership role in, in mm-hmm. making music for kids that respects children as whole people, respects the young uh, listener as, a, as an important audience. And I think we've done that both in our recordings, and certainly uh, Lois will be remembered in uh, the, the records, uh, the, the albums that people love, her fans and Sharon Lewis and Bram fans. And also, you know, we did that in concert as well. Um, so let's let's celebrate what we've got, uh, and and it's still going on. I'm still doing concerts. I just came back from Alberta, where I did three concerts in three days, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm still making uh, new kids albums. I'm recording one right now as a successor to my Love Bug album, which came out last year. So mm-hmm. I'm in my mid 60s, and uh, I think the wonderful thing about children's music is it's it's new to a three year old even if it was recorded 30 years ago. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. And I'm struck by that, too, the fact that uh, that adults are having such an outpouring of emotional reaction uh, to the passing of Lois, the, that there is such a strong, strong feeling about these these, these ultimately children's songs. Uh, can you explain that? Sure. I mean, if you grew up singing these songs, then you remember them uh, very well. And there's a part of your childhood in these memories. So no wonder people are, you know, having a, an outpouring of emotion to, you know, at at hearing of uh, the loss of uh, Lois. And, you know, music um, plays an important part in our being, and certainly if, if as children we're hearing music uh, day in, day out, of those singers that we, we love, we'll, of course, hold, hold uh, those people and those voices in a sacred place within us. Do you have a favorite show or a favorite memory of Lois? <laughs> well, I, I, I tend to remember uh, Potluck, dinners <laughs> somehow but, did you guys uh, used to like sit around and sing there there was a bit of that yes oh boy yeah it's nice to was. think about and uh i remember when i when i recorded singable songs just before it was released i took it over to her house and and she kindly listened to it for me and and uh you know was smiling and you know so there's a lot of camaraderie in those early days in toronto that sounds nice great well, uh, well, thanks so much, Raffi, for joining us. Thanks, Raffi. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Raffi remembering Lois Lillenstein, who passed away Thursday at 78. We loved her in the morning and in the afternoon. This week, Ben Affleck made news when it was revealed 
through that treasure trove of Sony email hacks via WikiLeaks that he was involved in covering up a particular branch of his family tree when he agreed to partake in Finding Your Roots, a PBS series about mapping out your ancestors, and the researchers found out that one of his distant relatives had been a slave owner. Affleck asked them to admit that info in the final cut, and well, they did edit it out. And when the email exchange between Finding Your Roots host Henry Gates Jr. and friend Sony boss Michael Linton were revealed this week, Gates quickly said that he and his team made the independent editorial decision to cut out that gem, deciding only to reveal, quote, the most compelling aspects of their Affleck findings, which include profiling a relative who is active in the civil rights movement. Affleck has since come out as saying that he now regrets the ask to cut it in the first place because he was embarrassed to learn that he had a slave owner in the family. So what um, what do you guys make of this debacle, Emma? Well, I think that being the descendant of a slave owner is never a good thing. It's not something you want to hear, and it doesn't look very good. But that said, being a sneaky descendant of a slave (laughs) owner is much worse. So Ben Affleck trying to conceal this fact rather than owning up to it, I think that's what has people up in arms. And I kind of understand that. There's something a little bit gross and smarmy about it. Um, and it's it's not as though if he were to be open about that information, people would spur him. I mean, you have, there are so many. This is kind of an extreme example. But in Germany, um, a book I just reviewed actually for the magazine called My Grandfather Would Have Shot Me is written by a, a German black woman who discovered that she has uh, Nazi roots, that her grandfather was, was a major Nazi, um, Eamon Guth, I think I'm saying his name wrong, Eamon Guth, whatever. Um, anyway, so she, you know, she, she wrote a book about it, and she's sort of been touring around the world and going to Israel and meeting with um, survivors' families and things like this. So I, not to say that Ben Affleck owes the world that. But I think that when you're honest about your ancestry, people don't really blame you for it or give you a hard time. Yeah. I think what's weird about this, whenever stuff like this comes out, is that now on the internet, just random internet people are so good at parsing through uh, like PR strategy. Like what's amazing about this segment to me is that we're talking about basically how he handled it and rather rather than like any of his act- the actual history of the background. And the same kind of thing like that happened when uh, like Gian Gameshi's, um PR people came out with like a Facebook uh, a statement ahead of time and everyone saw sort of right through that and you know and then he hired that high profile PR agency and that Navigator. became a story. Yeah, that, that became a story of himself. We're t- the fact that we're talking so much about like the way people are handling stuff I think is really fascinating to me. Um, and also... I mean, what's also odd is that um, people are stressed out about the way that he has um, handled his this this film, this documentary. But it's not a documentary series. It's just like puff piece, whatever uh, show about just getting celebs and seeing who were their family members. It's like, you know, it's not that actually just the fact that it's on PBS doesn't actually make it out to be like some hard hitting. Yeah, journalism. I agree with you. And I don't think that there's some people there's the charge that this is irresponsible journalism. Right. I disagree with that. I mean, really, who cares? It's not <laughs> it. It's not that kind of show. It's not journalism. Um, I don't think it ever purports. Really. I don't really take issue with the. I mean, like, I know that people are upset when the. The host and the the people in the show said it was our editorial decision, and people were like, "Oh yeah, sure, you're just trying to, you know, make the star happy, and now you're taking the hit for it." I think what bothers me about it so much is that, like, Affleck is he's taking this position to 
try to be an ally for people who are oppressed sometimes. Like he he schooled Bill Maher and like his Islamophobic leanings and he he co-founded this um, Eastern Congo initiative, which is like a charity that works with uh, communities in the DRC. And and so like he obviously he got this info about his um, ancestor slave owner was ashamed and thought that if he went public, it would erase or diminish the good work that he's done or diminish the way that he's perceived as a person who does good. And not only is that not true, that would just like you say, sort of Emma, we were talking about that that book, but that like a moral behavior is not genetic, but that he bungled the opportunity to point that out like twice now, first when he asked them to remove the information and, and then the second time when he came out with this apology, not apology about how he was embarrassed and 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 that he says that like it's important to remember just like you said it's important to remember that it's not a news program finding your roots is a show where you voluntarily provide a great deal of information about your family and and it makes you vulnerable and yeah but like that just it kind of reads like i'd like to be viewed as open and forthcoming unless it generates a perception of me where i don't that i don't like (laughs) and in which case please pretend you didn't see that and go back to the stuff where i look good I mean, you can be embarrassed because you should be. This is pretty embarrassing stuff. But, you know, you can say, well, you know what world? Do you think this kind Sometimes. of whitewashing of his image has to do with a potential political run? You were Maybe. saying there were rumors. There were rumors, used. yeah. I don't know. But, like, a cover-up is just never a good idea. Never. <laughs> just, like, it's no. just like, of course but it's bad to sneak. Oh, God. But it's... it's, Even it's I know. Like, you can't change how others behaved, including your relatives. Adrian, you mentioned, like, it's what's so fascinating is it's we're talking about how it was handled. But that's and and the choices he made and how to handle information. But that's all the choice that we've got Mm. is how you handle things. Like, you can't change how that your relative is a slave owner. But you can be like, hey, I'm definitely not. Yeah. Let me ask. And it's not genetic. (laughs) But is this embarrassing? I'm interested in this because, uh, like, as a Chinese person, I don't I am not brought up by white people who may have had slaves so I, I yeah, have no connection with this no but my question is like as so a is Jewish it, like, person I was also <laughs> sure, sure. have no but, but like but is, it, but is it embarrassing that right. your great 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 grandfather uh, have owned slaves isn't like if that's the case shouldn't like 50% of Americans be embarrassed like I think more than anything it's like a whoa like you know slavery does have like an impact on your daily lives like you know I can do whatever I want now but know that it was such a deep uh, harrowing part of our history that's I don't think I don't find anything embarrassing, fundamentally embarrassing. About I think that. it's because it's just recent history, mm. just like World War Two. Obviously, is recent history. I mean, my great 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 grandfathers, my my descendants are Romans. They were terrible people. Yeah. Also, but it's just far back enough that the history books are like, yeah, but they're pretty cool, right? Like, what about all the terrible things they did? Like, lots of people have done lots of terrible things. We're on stolen land in Canada. Nobody likes to remember that part. You know, like everybody's mm. got something. If you look back, I'm far sure enough. that Ben Affleck, in retrospect. You know, if he, if he could go back in time, he would not have covered this up. However, at the time, he got I'm found sure out. the if only he could go thing back in he time, was he would the only thing he was thinking was like, I don't want Buried, slave Buried owner now. to come up when people Google my name. Yeah, that was the so. only thing he was thinking. But he just, and, you know, you can't change the past, but you can change how you handle it. It was just a political slogan. It's just, it's just awkward. It's just awkward. <laughs> it's just awkward. Bad move, Affleck. Bad one. This week, Jonathan Crombie, the actor perhaps best known as Gilbert Blythe from CBC Television's adaptation of Anne of Green Gables, passed away suddenly this week at the too young age of 48 from a brain hemorrhage. His death plunged many into what Anne would call the depths of despair, touching off a remarkable series of remembrances, including a number of them swooning over Gilbert as a romantic ideal or a nostalgic crush for people in their early adolescence. 
That's certainly true for our own Julia Johnson and made us think, maybe we should talk about our own first pop culture crushes and why they were important. So Julia, tell us about what inspired this thought. Yeah, I mean, it was extremely sad to hear uh, earlier this week about Jonathan Crombie's untimely death. Certainly our thoughts go out to his friends and family. But um, when it happened, it happened on the weekend, uh, I noticed a few social media uh, mentions that, you know, like R.I.P., my first crush. And I, I, you know, a handful of women that I know would also classify um, the character of Gilbert Blythe and Anne of Green Gables as their first pop culture crush. And I started to, like, ask around who, who was your first pop culture crush, like the kind that when you're still a little too young to really know what a crush is, like they just make you feel funny in your tummy when you look, you just really want to look at their face. You don't really know why. So like I said, I started this straw poll asking people who their first pop culture crush was and how the traits of those, those, that crush may, may be translated into like, you know, then when, when you had real life crushes and, or romantic relationships that you chose. And my favorite my favorite answer, the person will remain anonymous, as they asked, but um, was when she was little, she would watch Saturday morning cartoons and then her dad would turn the television on to home improvements and like put around the house, always to Bob Vila. When we're all finished around here, we'll take one step down and we'll be in a screen porch and it'll be raised right up to this height. Now, we're building the deck and due to floodplain regulations, the deck cannot be attached to the existing house. It has to be free floating, almost like a giant... 12 by 15 foot coffee table, if you will. So she always had like this real affinity to Bob Vila. And, you know, her husband is, I mean, much better looking than Bob Vila, but doesn't not look like Bob Vila, but it's you like that. <laughs> and for me, mine is um, totally dorky, but it's uh, the film adaptation of The Secret Garden that was released in like the mid 90s, I guess. And it was Dickon who was like the, the hearty, you know, boy of the north country land kind of character with like a little flat cap who was really he was like extremely kind and self-reliant and content with simple pleasures and had like this childlike wonder of the world and i know that that is painfully earnest but i mean what can i say that's that's my type and for the most part my crushes and so on throughout my life have uh, those those people usually have a healthy chunk of those traits so um emma what was uh what was your first pop culture crush i think my first pop culture crushes were probably Zach Morris on Saved by the Bell and Bart Simpson. <laughs> um, I just really liked the sort of class clown bad boy type, but those were my first hetero crushes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think that later on, I I always watched this movie when I was a kid called Heartbreakers starring Jennifer Love Hewitt and Sigourney Weaver. Terrible movie. A really disgusting <laughs> premise um, the they're a mother daughter team, and Sigourney Weaver is like this old. Um, she's like a cougar who who cons men, and so like she'll, a gold digger, right? Yes, yeah. she's a gold digger. So she'll sort of shack up with them for a few months, and there will be like a shotgun wedding. And then, wait, does, sho- does a shotgun wedding mean you're pregnant? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, forget it. Not a shotgun <laughs> wedding. Just a fast. Just a hastily just a, put together yeah, wedding. Shotgun wedding. speed wedding. Um, <laughs> And then, and then she would uh, steal all of their money or or do some sort of bizarre trick where you know she would make it look like oh yeah this is the most disgusting part sorry this is very long winded but Jennifer Love Hewitt <laughs> is very attractive and would walk around in it was this her movie. daughter in the movie right it was, yes is right. her daughter in the movie and she'd walk around exclusively in these tube dresses they were all the same dress in different colors yes and she would seduce her the mother's new husband. New husband 
and then she would get some money out of it because you know right. the adult philanderer. Sure. Yeah. Is it hard? What? Getting married. I, I mean, I haven't <sighs> been here that long, but I've already heard tons of stories about you and women. Yeah, well, those days are all over, Wendy. Forever. And I, I kept watching this movie. It's horrible. The only uh, male love interest in it is Jason Lee, who is funny but not very attractive. And so the only explanation is that I was into Jennifer Love Hewitt. I didn't realize it at the time. I don't even think she's really beautiful. I think she's just hot. Yes. But All right. Um, yeah, but Oops. I just I kept watching it for those tube dresses, and now in my gay adulthood do I only realize that that was why I was watching it and I just sort of my brother would come in and be like you're watching that movie again like <laughs> really it's not really terrible movie really again. bad movie but I guess can't imagine what the interest is so, yeah. that's great that you guys have like first pop culture crushes that like say something about you today whereas I feel like mine in no way reflect who I am but hey we'll see um, I guess my perhaps my one of my favorite movies of all time is the mid 90s classic Space Jam uh, and in it uh, is the introduction of the inexplicably hot Rabbit, uh, Lola Rabbit, not to be confused with Jessica Rabbit from right. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, but uh, Lola Rabbit, whose ears, uh, if you watch the movie again, as I did recently, um, are her ponytail. Like they don't actually function as her ears inexplicably. They're they're um, her uh, they her hair is it's just it, like flops, you know, sensually. My name is Lola Bunny. Lola. <laughs> yes. Hello. Uh, my name is Bugs. <clears throat> you want to play a little one-on-one, -on -one, doll? Doll? Uh-huh. On the court. Bugs. At the time, I was, uh, I She's believe, She's got some eight. booty shorts on, too. It, it just, it doesn't, why Why does a bunny have <laughs> hips? You, you know? know what, though? A lot of people so answered that, like, Aladdin and mm -hmm. and Beast from Beauty and the Beast. Sure. And just, you know, the rescuers was somebody, somebody mentioned that. So cartoons, you're on, Cartoon, on, I mean, the other one on is, track here. <laughs> well, so that, that was one, Lola Rabbit, just crazy. I don't know. It was a lot of feelings. And, uh, and the other one was... Uh, Bunny in your tummy. <laughs> this one was... Another one was... Uh, I was also an avid uh, comic book reader. And, uh, I, and again, this was not like... Like you were saying, this isn't something where it was like, oh, like I like attract to her. It's just like a feeling. Right. Uh, and the one... Like the comic book character I would always look out for was this was this like purple-haired woman named Psylocke, whose skill was that she could psychically create a sword from her hand. Oh, um, boy. <laughs> that is some... So I don't... I don't Are know. Are you sure you're not a lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I yeah, I I don't really know what what Psylocke is supposed to say about me other than I guess I thought swords were pretty cool. <laughs> but uh but I don't know what is what's that supposed to say about me that like it's Lola Rabbit and just and this... we don't have enough time to diagnose God. you. <laughs> we don't have oh, enough man. time in a podcast. In a, in a like I mean they're similar in the sense that like they are fictional just like my current relationships. Oh, the sad sack <laughs> card. Adrian's favorite card to play. <laughs> So who are your pop culture crushes? Let us know on Twitter at McLean's Mag or leave us a comment on McLean's.ca. Well, that's it for this week. Find new episodes every Friday at McLean's.ca and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and BeyondPod. Tell us what you think with a review on iTunes and drop us a comment on the site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast, On the Hill. You can also hear some of our columnists, like our very own Emma Title, read their work at McLean's Voices. Both are on iTunes and Stitcher. We're also excited to announce that McLean's Books podcast, The Bibliopod, is out now. It'll be on iTunes soon, and look for it on McLean's.ca. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title. You can follow Julia at Julia Del J, and me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>